Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and I have the privilege of uh, leading this church with men like that, and uh, and I get to preach uh, a lot of the time. So uh, thank you um, for being part of this family. I love to see it actually look like a family um, sometimes like that. Normally, I don't wear T-shirts, um, and it's not because I don't think it's sacrilegious or think it's sacrilegious because the mic doesn't pin on very well. But today, I wore this because it says "Hope Against Hope" because it works with the sermon. This is uh, from a ministry. Well, I shouldn't even say it's a ministry. There's a little um, website address here. It says prayforian.com. If you were to uh, go there, if you were to YouTube uh, Ian and Larissa, you would see the video of a wedding between a young man named Ian and a, a woman named Larissa. And the story of them where they were two young college kids uh, in love and uh, planning to get married, but not engaged. And uh, one day, Ian was driving home from having worked with his dad and got in a car accident. Um, Larissa was called. She rushed to the hospital, praying that it wasn't his head, and it was. He had uh, severe brain damage, and um, basically, uh, they went through, uh, you know, that obviously morning time of great loss. But then they proceeded, after they could communicate a little bit, um, to decide to be married, and uh, went through with the wedding. And it's an amazing picture of hope. It's very much a, a, almost a modern-day Ruth story, at least with Larissa, as concerned in terms of Ruth. Um, it is uh, incredible. He is uh, very much incapacitated in terms of his ability to reciprocate relationship like he could, um, but it's a picture of them hoping about something beyond um, what might be um, a, quote, normal marriage, and it's a picture of faith that, quite frankly, is convicting uh, because I'm not sure I have that much, uh, but it's awesome. So Hope Against Hope, if you want to look there, uh, prayforian.com, I think, is uh, her blog about the experience and their life, and uh, both amazing people, and uh, I think you'd be blessed by looking at that. So connected with Ruth, we are in Ruth chapter 3, and um, this is the story, if you're new with us, that takes place during the time of Judges. That's why we're doing it in the midst of our study of Judges, um, and like the book of Judges, the first chapter was just full of darkness and tragedy and hopelessness and brokenness. Um, you had starving families that were felt, you know, felt forced uh, to move away from God and away from God's people, hoping to find life, and they found death. A father died, husbands died, no babies were born, and you had one mother and her two daughter-in-laws left to fend for themselves uh, as, as widows. One of the daughters, uh, named Orpah, whose name means gazelle, uh, decides after Naomi, the mom, kind of uh, pleads with her, she decides to run home to uh, her pagan people and her pagan gods and to put her faith there. Uh, the other daughter, named Ruth, whose name means friend, remained committed to the family she had become a part of and remained committed to her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, and to uh, Yahweh, uh, the one true God of Israel. And so Naomi leads her uh, and leads Ruth, I should say, back to Bethlehem, where she enters into community. And one of the first things she says is, don't call me Naomi, whose name actually meant God is sweet or pleasant. She said, don't call me sweetness anymore. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. And she ends chapter 1 by saying, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Giving us a picture of her, her view of God uh, is that, you know, God's involvement feels bitter, and my future feels and looks hopeless. Chapter 2 uh, enters, and what we see is slowly this light comes in, and, and God, His invisible hand, uh, is revealed as working in countless ways. Some they can see, some they cannot or have not. But He is working to p- bring about this, this plan of redemption for Ruth, for Naomi, for Boaz, and ultimately for everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus Christ, including disciples who are here today. Um, and ultimately, we see it working out in all these strange ways. I appreciate what, what Randy said, because there's ways... Um, that, that God is working through pain and through suffering, that sometimes He gives the grace for us to see, but oftentimes we can't see it, but we trust in faith that He is working. So you have this relocation of the family um, that honestly worked uh, 
moving away from God, away from God's people, and you're thinking, how can this pagan land and, and living in it produce anything? But ultimately, God has accounted for it and is using it. You have gleaning laws that were written hundreds of years prior to where we see them employed in Ruth, and they are written for the, quote, fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow, of which Ruth is all three. Uh, And so they work to basically bring her into a situation uh, where she is gleaning in a field, and the field is owned by a man who was raised by a harlot named Rahab, and he has or she has raised him in such a way that he is, I think, and very much appreciative of women of faith that were similar to her. He just happens to be very old, happens to be still a bachelor, happens to be very wealthy and respected and owns this large field. And they all just happen to converge together at the right time in the right moment so that Boaz and Ruth meet and ultimately we'll see that they fall in love. Now, what was tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy becomes then grace upon grace upon grace for Ruth and for Naomi and for Boaz and ultimately, like I said, everyone who trusts in Jesus because this is who the story is really about. And by the end of chapter 2, we have hope returning to Naomi and what was God hates me and is I am very bitter about it. Her last words now at the end of chapter 2 are, his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's like, whoa, big shift. And then you get to the craziness of chapter 3. And chapter 3 is, here, here's the whole of it, right? The power of a little bit of hope. A little bit of hope transforms everything. And Naomi has a little bit of hope, and it moves her to do some pretty radical things, and Ruth as well. So if you go with me, Ruth Chapter 3, verse uh, 1, says this. If I can turn to it and find it. Here we go. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, or home for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So we see a hope is amazing, and when someone is hopeless... When someone has absolutely no hope, um, they are often paralyzed. What I mean by paralyzed is that they don't do anything, dream anything, act on anything. At the end of chapter 2, Naomi, um, or chapter 1, Naomi was completely hopeless. And you see that beginning uh, going into chapter 2. She felt everything was against her, including God, and her bitterness had blinded her to several of the graces around her. She said, I'm empty, I have nothing. The fact was she had Ruth, and she also had several kinsmen redeemers, relatives, in the town that was probably smaller in terms of population than this church. And so she was blinded to that. All she could see was what she didn't have and how everything she felt had been taken away from her. And her hopelessness... I think led her, which is common, to somewhat of a depression where she was just immobilized and unable to to do anything, including dream or plan or even act. And if you remember, prior to coming back to Bethlehem, when her husband died and her two sons died, she heard about Bethlehem and the grace that had been poured upon them and the fact that they had food again when she was in the fields, implying that she was out there working. Well, now she's back in Bethlehem, and she's not working. She's not even talking about it. And at the beginning of chapter 2, it almost sounds as if she's barely able to get out of bed. Ruth is like, hey, I'm going to go glean in the field. And the most name we could do is like, yeah, go. Go ahead. She's depressed. 
I believe she is, which often happens with little hope, you easily become just a victim. The world's against me. I can do nothing. No one can do anything for me. There is no hope. I can't see beyond this moment. This is all there is, and it's really ugly and bad. There is no future. There is no vision for what could be. There is no action at all. And that's Naomi. And as I said, I actually believe that this story is largely about Naomi. That we learn the most about her transition and her transformation because Ruth and Boaz are pretty much the same characters throughout the whole story, but Naomi changes quite a bit. And at this point, all she has is is day-to-day management. Survivalist. I just want to get through the day. I just want to make it. Nothing crazy. Just survive. And honestly, whenever you have someone in that kind of state, when you have a family in that kind of state, when you have a church or a community of people in that kind of state, just management, just routine, just get through it, it is uninspiring. It is unpleasant, and it's definitely uneventful. You do nothing. You go through the motions. But when you get a little bit of light, just a little bit of hope, a little dream, it can change everything. It can bring an excitement that I think is infectious and inspiring. And we see that a little bit of hope transforms Naomi. It, it moves her to action, to actually start planning something. And she begins to make this elaborate plan for Ruth to get married. And it's pretty elaborate, and I'll break it down a little bit. Commentators disagree on exactly what's going on here. And I'm sure there's all kinds of cultural significance, but they even disagree on that. But like, this is just freaky. This plan is weird. It's strange. It's not like, well, the Jewish people do. It's not like that. It's odd. So she makes this elaborate plan. And in doing that, she identifies, she's like, look, Ruth, I want to find a home for you. I want to find a family for you. It's time to be done with widowhood. And she identifies Boaz as this thing called the Redeemer. He's a relative, and he is characterized as this role in the Bible, which is called a kinsman redeemer. Built into the law of God, not just in one place, but in several places, built into the law of God is hope. When someone loses everything, That's part of God's law. It's demonstration, reflection of God's goodness. And Ruth lost everything. Naomi's lost everything. But there is laws that afford help for that. And basically, to summarize it, you have a blood relative known as this kinsman redeemer is to step in and rescue in certain situations. Well, what situations? Well, there's several. One is property. Okay? So if someone was so desperate, so destitute, so impoverished, they had to sell a chunk of their land just to survive, the Redeemer could come in and buy that land back for that person and give that to them. Okay? There was also slavery. So sometimes they were so destitute, so impoverished, they had to sell themselves to work off debt. So the Redeemer could come and free them from slavery by paying their debt. Yeah, sounds like Jesus. Chris will talk about that next week. Okay? You also had a justice. What was that? Well, if a blood relative was killed, murdered really, an innocent was murdered, the kinsman redeemer by law could go in and kill that person. That's why they created cities that people could flee to to be protected from that and they have to live there forever. But the kinsman redeemer has responsibility to act justly and to do that. You had um, restitution. So if... uh, the Redeemer would walk in if, if someone was uh, owed something and they were killed. You obviously can't pay that person anymore because they're dead. So in order for justice to be completed and for restitution to be made, the kinsman Redeemer would step in and receive that in the name of that person. You had the kinsman Redeemer could act on a lawsuit. Like if someone's being sued, they could come in and assist in legal proceedings. And the last two are the most important, young widows and old widows. They're both identified in Scripture. Young widows obviously could be redeemed when the relative who was married to her died. The next relative would walk in and he would marry her if she's younger. But the old widows were also could be redeemed in that they could be brought into the family and cared for and taken care of. So the Redeemer has a huge role, and this is where Naomi is thinking. And it's probably 
true that she tells Ruth all about this because Ruth's a Moabite. She doesn't have a clue about Israelite law. She doesn't have a clue. So she's like, here's how it works. Here's the plan. And so Naomi's plan to send Ruth in there is pretty radical, and it's basically to get her married, to get Boaz interested in her. And I don't know what is more difficult to understand or accept. is like, why this plan? Or the fact that Ruth's like, yeah, sounds good. No questions, just goes for it. And it's strange, because what she tells her is, is pretty odd. But what we see is that she makes a plan, okay? We talk about God's providence. We talk about God governing and involving himself in all aspects of our lives and directing all things. He is sovereign. He is good. But that does not mean we don't make any plans. We do, at times, make plans. And quite frankly, we make sometimes very radical plans. The providence of God, I think, actually inspires us to make those kinds of plans because we know, dude, he's totally in control. Let's go for it. And quite frankly, radical plans for God, and I've only had one or two in my life, but radical plans and radical action for God are some of the most inspiring and hope-filled things there are, whether that be a plan for an individual, for a family, or for a church. I mean, you wonder, like, why we want to go to Snohomish? Because, quite frankly, I go, why not? It's the kind of situation, because you have different radical steps of faith. You have one that are reckless. What are reckless? Like, going in, and let's go over there and just sign a huge lease and just pour all this money in here. That's just stupid and reckless. It doesn't take, it's crazy. Over here is, we do nothing. There's no faith there. Where I want to be in the middle is like, we're going to go, and we're going to do this. How's it going to work out? Um, I don't know. God's providence allows me to answer the question of, well, how's this going to work out? I don't know, but God does. It's going to work out some way, and that might be he changes my plans. I'm okay with that. Proverbs 16 is a really interesting proverb when we start thinking about God's providence and your plan making. And you've heard it before, but in this context, listen, it says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. There's two things working here. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We've got to be careful of our flesh. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So we make plans. We commit it to the Lord and trust that He will govern, He will direct, even maybe off our plans. If it's truly committed to Him, you'll be okay with that. But we make plans. Sometimes we make crazy plans. You wouldn't believe the number of crazy plans I have offered to the elders. Okay? Chris laughs because he's knocked down like nine of ten of them, right? I'm always like, how about this? What about this? That's crazy talk, right? And they'd say no. But that's why you have elders. So crazy guys like me don't do crazy things. But that's, what, that's me. I'm wired. I get inspired by that kind of stuff. And I go, let's do this. We can't afford that. I know. So God's going to show up with money. We're not going to go in debt over it. He's got to show up. What about this? What about this? Yeah, that's crazy. That's not bad. You know, and then we talk about it. But that's how I'm wired. I'm wired because I get inspired by new things, hoping for God to show up and do something amazing. So her amazing plan, her great plan for Ruth is like, okay, good-looking young woman, go make yourself pretty. Get all perfumed up, right? Do your hair, all that stuff. Go down to where old man Boaz is sleeping off the harvest celebration. Uncover his feet and cuddle up. And Ruth's like, all right, that sounds good. I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's a little weird. And she's got to be going like, okay, where, where's this going? Right? Because the last time, Moab, her, her antecedent, right? Moab, her, her great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, the last time someone, a young woman, laid down with a man and got, after he was drinking, that's was produced. So she has this history. She's going, oh, man, this is, where's this going? Okay, I think I understand. I all right, I'll go. And she does. She goes. 
Here's how it works out. Verse 6. So excited. All right. So she went down to the threshing floor. And just to remind you, okay, the threshing floor, what's that? Well, it's a big public area where they would throw down the grain or barley they've harvested. They usually have some kind of animal stomp on it. And then they would throw it up in the air, the winnowing fork. They'd throw it up, and then the bad stuff would blow out, and the grain would fall because it's heavier. Okay? And it was public. So you understand why Gideon wasn't threshing his wheat in, you know, in public. He was doing the wine press to hide it because it was a very public area. Well, then they have a pile of grain that was theirs, and they would pile it up on the side, and then the owner or a trusted hand would sleep with it. Why? Because they don't want it taken. So that's why he's down. He's not like, well, I just sleep down there every now and then. No, done harvesting. He's protecting his uh, you know, investment, and that's why he's down there. So that's important to understand. So where are we at? Verse... Six. So he went down to the, she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain because he wants to protect it. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Okay? And at midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet! Exclamation point. And he said, who are you? Now, he, he doesn't know who it is. He's dark, okay? He's also, like, coming out of probably a stupor. So like, who are you, right? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, so you have a little hope moving you to plan when you weren't doing anything before, and now we're seeing a little bit of hope is moving her to make some, and take some very big risks. Some things that could go one way or another. So she courageously goes down. She, she approaches a sleeping Boaz. Wait till he falls asleep. She lays down next to him after uncovering his feet. And at midnight, not her, something awakens Boaz. And he turns over to discover every single guy's dream. A beautiful woman laying down at his feet wanting to be married. Okay? And... He's shocked, right? He's shocked. He's like, who are you? What is going on here? And you're waiting, as you're reading this, if you don't know the end, you're waiting to see his reaction because, like I said, this can go a lot of ways and most of them are bad. Now, as much as Boaz at this point has shown favor that Naomi, um, you know, has, has kind of based on the fact that he is godly, the plan has put both Boaz and Ruth in really vulnerable and precarious positions. No matter what happens, their relationship is going to change this night and will never be the same. And it can go, like I said, very bad or very good. Bad-wise, Boaz could very easily and understandably reject her. He could uh, mock her. Just as a defense mechanism, like, what are you doing? I never led on to this, right? He could legally accuse her, which would ruin her reputation, which she has a good one at this point. He could even take advantage of her. And you think about, well, he's proven so much. Many, many godly men have fallen for a lot less. And so lots of things can go wrong here. And we can't dismiss the fact that this is a radical radical plan. And for Ruth, she's also obviously vulnerable. Um, She could obviously be rebuffed. She could be abused. But I think the most startling thing is to consider that she could potentially lose all of the protection and all of the relief that Boaz has offered her up to this point. She's gone all in. She could lose everything. And everything at this point is a year's worth of sustenance and protection, someone who has nothing. And I think this is maybe the key to the whole passage because she risks all of the material benefits of this world that Boaz has created for her just to get him. She risks all the material stuff that he can and has given her 
just so she can get him. And for the most part, if we really examine our life, whether you're old, young, or whatever, I don't think a lot of us have that kind of courage, that kind of radical faith, because I think most of us have a misplaced hope. It's not that we don't have hope. We have a misplaced hope. Notice what Ruth is hoping in. See, for us, when we take risks where we are hoping in God and not just to get His stuff, there is no fear of failure. See, most of us, we think about our prayers, we think about some of our decisions, a lot of it is to get His stuff. Ruth's not hoping in the food. She's not hoping in the protection. She's not hoping in the shelter. She's not praying for that stuff. She is hoping in getting Boaz himself. And I was struck by the superficiality of my prayers. Praying for jobs. Nothing wrong with praying for a job. Praying for more financial security. Praying for you know, provision. Whatever it happens to be, Let's ask ourselves really carefully, are we really hoping in God or some stuff and benefit that he might be able to provide? Because there is a stark difference. Ruth, willing to let all of it go if she can get Boaz. And as much as we want to say that's, oh, what a picture of love. No, it's a picture of faith. It makes verses like Jesus when he was preaching in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of a huge sermon, You may have heard it before. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Ruth is not anxious about what she's going to eat, what she's going to drink, what she should wear, though she should be. She has nothing. For the Gentiles, Jesus says, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seeking first His righteousness, seeking first Him, makes a lot more sense in the context of Ruth here. Hope in God's Word. Okay, let's not forget what Ruth's saying. Hope in God, hope in specifically about the law of the Redeemer, and hope that by faith this man will fulfill it, leads her to take initiative. She's acting on what, oh, God says this, according to Naomi, I'm going to do it. And then we see, not only is hope, like, okay, there's a plan, not only just like, okay, it's a, man, it's a radical, great risk plan, lots of things go wrong, then we see her ask for something big. See that Naomi, um, I should say Ruth is not some puppet that Naomi just kind of, she has her own, initiative here, she goes off script. And she says a very bold request, and again, we can't minimize the boldness. I want you to spread your wing, some translation will say skirt or garment, over me. Spread your wing over me. Now, Boaz had used the same phrase when he had described Ruth's commitment to Naomi, how she had sought refuge under the wing of God. And the only other place that this is used in Scripture is in Ezekiel, when God is speaking about His relationship to us. Here's what He says. Describe exactly what Naomi, I mean Ruth, is asking here. God says about Himself, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became Mine. Now the scene, if you read even Jewish history, if you read some commentators, it's very sexually provocative. They, they just, some describe it as just that, like he is pro, she is propositioning her, and Boaz, by God's grace, is so godly he doesn't buy it. But what I think we see very clearly is that her request here is very specific, and it's not, you know, I just want to sleep with you. In fact, it's the very opposite. No, I don't just want to sleep with you. I don't just want some temporary, momentary pleasure, not even temporary relief 
in my life. I want your protection. I want your love. I want your life commitment. Marry me. May I be yours. Will you be mine? And her hope in this big question, I think is a result of Ruth realizing that without his redemption, she has nothing. When we think about that for a second, like, well, she has stuff, right? She's got food and she's got some, she's got a year's worth. I mean, she could hold off. She looks at that and says, I really don't have anything unless I have someone to change my situation at its core. But I need a redeemer to give me a new name and a new life and a new hope and a new purpose and a new joy, i.e., this shows and talks about how we should view Christ. So often we get so focused on the things we can get from him and not realize how big a need we have and how much we need redemption and rescue. And needing redemption, needing salvation, needing my situation changed from the inside out, not just the outside in, is what Jesus provides. And I think what Ruth perhaps sees is how big her need is. How vast and desperate his situation is. And then she sees, honestly, the bigness of the Redeemer. How much Boaz could actually save her. And then she makes a big faith-filled request. And I actually believe if you find your prayers are fairly pathetic. By pathetic, I mean small. You're just worried about the little stuff in life. The stuff that's really fairly insignificant. And you're not desperate just to have God show up. To have God there. In whatever situation, whatever need. I think ultimately, it's because you don't see how big a need you have. I think God wants us to ask some big questions. I'm reminded by um, C.S. Lewis Hall, although it's it's a quote from his Weight of Glory book. And he doesn't use it in this context, but I'm going to use it in this context. Here's what he says in talking about, I think, big petitions, big questions for God, asking for more than just the stuff. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. And I argue that maybe He finds our questions not too big but too small. We are half-hearted creatures, He says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Ruth is like, I ain't going for the little stuff. I'm going big! Big question. I might lose it all, but I want so desperately to have you, Boaz. And then Boaz responds. And you're, well, okay, what's he going to say? Right? Verse 10. Here's what he says. He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if He will, redeem you. Good. Let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at His feet until the morning. But arose before one could recognize another and he said let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he said bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out so she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her and then she went into the city 
So Boaz is moved by what he calls a second kindness. The first kindness was basically her forsaking her first family to commit to Naomi um, and uh, God's family. And then her second kindness here is forsaking all the younger, uh, more attractive men who may be wealthy as well for old, boring, but godly Boaz. Okay? Basically, we need to understand Ruth could have married whoever she wanted. She's not obligated to marry Boaz. Now, what I think we, we see in her decision here is that her calling, her mission, her desires, her decision-making are not driven by something as superficial as personal preferences. I'm not sure I can say the same for myself all the time. Because I think, if we're honest, that's how most of us make our major decisions. And this is a major decision. Think about how you've decided where you live. I like the weather, I don't. My job's up here, it's not. Where we work, who we marry, what church we go to, or leave. Personal preferences drive a lot of those things. And my question is, how often are we actually asking God, what would you have me do? Where would you have me live? Where, what should I do for work? Who should I marry? What church should I be in? Instead, we have our list. And I used to do this with churches. It's the worst. I'd walk into a church, right? First thing, boom, doctrinal statement. Sit down. Let's hear the music. That sucks. I'm not feeling it. It's not drawing out my emotion. Okay? Check that off. Doctrine? I don't know if I like that reference. Check that off. Let's hear what you got, Pastor. Bring it. Oh, I wouldn't appreciate it like that. I was the worst with that. Okay? Now, not so much. Like, shut up. I have to preach, okay? With personal preferences. Not considering whether God may have us in a place with a bad boss, but he wants us there. Not considering that God may want us to live somewhere that we don't enjoy, whether it be the climate or the culture, but God says, I need you there. I have people there that you need to connect with. Or churches. We make it on personal preferences. But Ruth hasn't done that. Like all her girlfriends are like, girl, there's so many guys in town. I mean, there's this, there's this guy, Jethro, down here. He is just hot and wealthy. He's got a great field. Go glean over there, right? I mean, she's got options. But she's not making a decision based off what's the best option that aligns for what I want. Instead, she's endeavoring to act very specifically according to counsel, She is acting, I believe, in faith in God's Word, specifically redemption. And she is acting with providential opportunity. I don't know, and and Kristen knows, I was going to say this necessarily. He's still here? No, he might be out of here. I don't know if you understand how much money Chris left on the table to come work here. He didn't get paid a lot, but he got offered a pile of money to stay in Seattle. On the day he left... It's like, oh, you want to be a pastor? I'm going to show you a number, right? That's what it was like. But he was convinced he was called here, called to this community, called to this role. Even today, we went down there, gosh, not a month ago, I was assessing a guy from South Africa. Chris drove me down because I hate going to Seattle by myself. And so he went and connected with his old employee, you know, buddies. What'd they do? Offered him a job. Again, there's something about saying, you know what? Maybe my personal preferences are not all there is. Maybe God has some preferences of his own, and maybe I should listen to them and talk with him and ask him. That's what Ruth does. And then Boaz's response, there's not an answer right away. I think it's a hilarious response, and no one thinks it's funny, but I think it's hilarious, okay? He begins his response. She's like, I mean, she's vulnerable, right? She's like, marry me. And she's down there at the the foot of the bed. 
You know? And what does, she, what does he say his first words? Oh, my daughter. Right? That's not, a, that's not like, yeah, baby. That's like, cute kid. Right? That's what she hears. My, da- my daughter. My da- I just, my daughter? Come on. Uh-oh, she's thinking. He's like, my daughter, may you be blessed. This is such a kind thing. What? Like, how's this going to go? Right? And there's like a pause. Like, and? Like, and uh, get out of my room, and I'll make good on it. And what does he say? He finally comes out. She's, I think she's fearful because he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will save you. I will save you. What she doesn't know is that he has some other information. And his response is, is I think, just as radical as her request. And... He is vowing before the Lord to make sure she's redeemed. But then he's like, yeah, there's a little hiccup here. Another guy. And I think, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but where, you know, you're praying, you're making steps of faith, and man, God's just lining things up and blowing doors open. You're like, oh, is this happening? Oh, man, I feel like such an awesome Christian. You know, everything's going. And then he throws in a monkey wrench. It's like, boom. Whoa, 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 Lord, um, this is the way you were leading. What's this? Okay? A little hiccup in the plan. And I imagine Ruth going, yeah, but, okay, wait a second. I just, like, I talked myself into liking you, and I was like, okay, this was going to happen, and I was feeling good about it, and now this? And Boaz, I think, reveals himself to be actually quite similar to Ruth in that he is not driven, his actions are not driven by personal preferences either. He has respect for the law of God. He is not willing to compromise what God's word says, even if in his mind he can justify the blessing that it will create. Right? God's word is very clear. There's someone closer, it's his responsibility, his opportunity I wonder sometimes how, how often we try to skirt and compromise God's word because we in our mind go, well, I can see how this makes sense. I can see this blessing over here. I mean, clearly they need this, and this will result in this. God won't mind. Boaz has much more respect for God and his word than that. And the goal for both Ruth and for Boaz is redemption. Redemption's the goal even if it doesn't come through him. Redemption, so much so that he will risk and she will risk their own comfort, their own plans, even their own happiness, so that they can get what is envisioned as a picture of the gospel redemption. So he says, I'll redeem you, one way or another. Last verse it says, He instructs her to sleep where um, she was already. Stay there for the night. In the morning, he acts and he provides her some barley, which is very interesting. Last couple of verses. He came to her mother-in-law. She's given barley. She leaves. She came home to her mother-in-law. She said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then he told her all the man had done for her, saying, well, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. What is Ruth doing? She's preaching to Naomi is what she's doing. She's preaching, man, faith in God. Remember you said you were empty-handed? God's filling you up right now. Redemption is near. She replied, Naomi did, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. So Ruth returns home the next morning, obviously, gives her the six measures, and it's being filled up, and it's an awesome picture. But then the last verse of chapter 3, the last verse is something we probably totally skip over, and I probably would have too, but I talked to Pastor Jim up in Mount Vernon, and he's like, what do you think about this? I'm like, uh, that's a good idea. You're like writing it all down, right? So I stole it from him. But the last verse is very intriguing because an understanding of God's providence, of God governing, of God 
um, acting and involving himself in our lives and, and helping to direct all things to bring about his plan. That is providence. Sometimes that means we act. And sometimes that means we wait. And I don't know about you, but me, acting is easy. Man, I can go. Oh, I got 25 ideas right now that just came to mind. Let's do them all, right? I'm acting and it's inspiring. I can hope in that. It gives me energy. Waiting, not so much. Waiting, not so much. But sometimes acting is the most radical thing you can do, and sometimes waiting is the most radical thing you can do. And each of us struggle in one of those two. I don't know which one is your struggle. But I watch, honestly, Randy and Kari right now, and guess what? They're waiting. They've done a lot of acting. They've taken steps of faith. But now it's like, you know what? I'm going to trust and wait and see what you do, God. And I'm going to be okay with it. Naomi's showing some faith now. Now she's teaching Ruth a little bit. I don't need to have a grand plan this time. Now it's just wait and trust. So to conclude it all, what is, what is this whole thing about? Well, it is, it is a love story. It's a love story that, quite frankly, is full of hope. It's a love story that's, yes, between a young widow and a man in, in this context, but it's a love story between God and us. And when you're in love with God, and I know how sentimental that might sound for some of you guys, but when you're in love with God, man, it, and you have hope in who God is, it can move you to do some crazy things. And it can give you this, this energy to make plans and this, this energy to take risks and this energy to ask for big things, to dream a little bit. But what I think what moves these people more than anything, so I ask my question, like, what is moving Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz to just do these things? Like, why are they doing this? So here's my answer, I guess. Something to think about is that... Um, Naomi is not obligated to find a husband for Ruth. She's not required to. She's not obligated to. Ruth is not obligated to follow her plan at all. She went, that's crazy talk, woman. I'm going to glean. Okay? Not obligated. Boaz is not obligated to marry Ruth. Not legally, not otherwise. And Ruth isn't obligated to marry Boaz. There's something deeper at work that's moving these people to do things that honestly are aligned with God's word and are pretty risky and without guarantee, very faith-filled. And what I think we truly see is a picture of how God actually relates to us. And I think we easily forget the fact that God is not obligated to save us. There is nothing outside of God obligating him to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us. You go, well, why does he do it? Love! That changes my whole perspective of God. Well, you created the world, God. You've got to do something. No! He is not obligated. He is moved within himself to redeem. And also, I think, not only talks about God's relationship to us, but how does it impact our relationship to Him and His children, how we, how we relate to Him? And we, we are not to obey God out of fear that He won't love us if we don't. That's not the Gospel. But that's how a lot of us run our lives. Well, if I don't do this, then... The promised redemption of the Gospel... Faith in the fact that you are desperate and in need and helpless and this new hope comes in that Jesus says, look, I'm going to take that pile of sin that you have brought into your life and that others have brought into your life and I'm going to forgive it and I'm going to nail my son to the cross. Then I'm going to bury all of your sins with him to be gone forever. Then I'm going to raise him up and give you new life and give you his perfect, give it to you. Not obligated but I'm going to freely give it to you. New life, new joy, new identity, new everything. Everything is changing when you get to that place. 
where you're receiving this unconditional, undeserved, but desperately needed love, your motivation to follow him is completely transformed. And I'll quote Tim Keller because he's old and much wiser than me, and I could never say it as good as he did. Here's how he describes it. When you are deeply in love, when you are deeply in love and sure of the other person's unconditional commitment to you, think about in the context of Ruth, how much she trusts Naomi, how much they trust Boaz, how much Boaz trusts. When you are so sure of the other person's, of Jesus, unconditional commitment to you, there is a kind of fear motivation. What? Listen. But it's not primarily fear for you that you may be rejected and hurt, but fear for the other that he or she will be dishonored and hurt. So our motivation becomes a simple response to God's love. I don't, I'm not obeying you because I'm fearful you might not love me. I love you so much because of how much you love me. I just want to honor you. In short, the love of God motivates us toward a love for God. And a love for God moves us to radically live, to generously give, and to graciously love, especially those we might say don't deserve it. It's all about hope. And when you understand the commitment that Christ has to us, which is demonstrated by us taking communion, that you actually believe that, you're motivated to do some pretty crazy things. And I think exciting things. I'm going to close with a verse out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I think we're going to preach 1 Corinthians in um, January. So yeah, I'm campaigning for that. But it's simply so we can get to 2 Corinthians. That's where I really want to go, okay? But here's when, if you've lost hope, if you've lost hope and you find yourself paralyzed or all these things that Ruth was not, you know, paralyzed and helpless, I think the core isn't like, we'll find hope. The core is to understand love. So I'll close with this verse, one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this. I'll go back one verse. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, the gospel, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died.